1: It's Monday, December 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is the Daily Dive. It's the FBI's biggest investigation ever, looking into who was in the Washington on January 6th and who stormed the Capitol. It has also included the biggest ever request of phone data from geofence warrants. Google has provided data from over 5,000 devices as the FBI has tried to narrow their search to pinpoint suspects. Google also has a three-step process for these types of warrants to help protect as much privacy as possible and only provide info on those most likely to have committed a crime. We're only learning more about this now as lawyers for one suspect are looking to throw out the geofence evidence in court. Mark Harris, contributor to Wired, joins us for what to know. Next, if you weathered the pandemic storm and stuck with your employer over the last couple of years, then you very well could be underpaid. The tight labor market has led to a lot of movement and forced employers to try and lure new candidates with bigger paychecks and more work benefits. That has led to a divide with current employees as salaries for new hires are on average 7% higher than existing workers. Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Business Insider, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
0: The Capitol Police, the DC Metropolitan Police, Other law enforcement agencies were attacked and assaulted before our very eyes, speared, sprayed, stomped on, brutalized, and lives were lost.
1: Joining us now is Mark Harris, contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're getting uh, some uh, new news in what's going on with all the January 6th insurrection stuff. Uh, The latest news we're hearing is that the leader of the Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes, was found guilty of seditious conspiracy for his part uh, on January 6th. Um, So a lot of movement still going on there. A lot of other people uh, awaiting trials and whatnot. Uh, But, Mark, you took a look into... The FBI's uh, geofence dragnet on January 6th. They asked Google for information for for all the phones, all the people that were there uh, in and around the Capitol on January 6th, just so they can help narrow down who might have been there. This is the biggest ever investigation for the FBI, and it's the biggest ever haul of uh of phones from these controversial geofence warrants as they're called so mark tell us a little bit about it because it gets super interesting
2: yeah it's really interesting i mean geofence warrants have been around for a while and they it's where um uh, law enforcement can ask a technology company just to give them the uh you know identifying info for phones that are within a certain area and you can imagine we've had ones in bank robbery you know someone walks into a bank robbery you get all the the phones that were in the bank at the time you can easily exclude the tellers and the customers and then anyone's left over you know could be could be the criminal so we've had them for a few years but this is by far the biggest um geofence warrant that's ever the, the most productive it's given the most um, it's given the most results and that's obviously because there were lots of people at the capitol that day right. so what the DOJ and the, and the Department of Justice and the FBI asked for was a four, they set up a geofence of a four-acre area that was the Capitol building itself and the immediate surroundings that were beyond the barriers where people shouldn't have been. And so the idea was that anyone who was in this area is kind of, at the very least, is, is committing some sort of trespassing because they're in an area they shouldn't be. And so, you know, they served this warrant on Google. I don't know what they expected, but what they got back was um, 5,723 devices in that area at the time of the riot, right? So they specified at the time of the riot, they didn't get, um, you know, tourists, uh, you know, at other times of day or whatever. And so that's a huge number of people. um, And what's really interesting is just the scale of it. um, And that kind of, and it's also interesting to see the process by which the FBI narrowed it down. They haven't filed charges against (laughs) 5,723 people. What they have done, they filed charges on about a thousand people. And so they go through this three-step process um, to narrow down the initial production of those enormous thousands of devices down to a more manageable number. Yeah, um, of- and they do this in all Geofence cases.
1: Yeah, exactly. Real quick before we get into that, because Google's response to this was, hey, look, w- you know, if we we're going to cooperate with the government when they ask for stuff, but we do have a rigorous process in place for geofence warrants. Oftentimes we push back. we try to narrow the scope of what they're asking for to provide as much privacy for our, our customers as much as we can. So... Yes, now detail that three-step process because what they did is they started off with this huge pool of phones, then they it down, whittle mm. it down, whittle it down, whittle it down, and this is this is the very interesting part.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting part. Um, so Google always insists on the three-step process. One, they have the big old dragnet where they just get everything in there. Number two, they then try and exclude any numbers that that they know not to be people of interest, and that would be in the bank robbery case, that would be the teller's, and the customers who are standing around, they know they have their identities. It's not one of them. And then the third one would be um, particular device IDs that had an interesting track. Maybe the the, 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 the device, um, you know, was just in and out quickly, or maybe it was there for a while. There was something about those particular, you know, um, spots, you know, dots on a map, the blue dots on a map that intrigued them. So that would be the three-step process. And they would only get the, the email and um, account recovery telephone number for the, for the third group, the smallest group. Yeah. And so we went through a similar process here. They originally asked for 5,723, 5, so they got those. Then they um, took away any phones that were also in the Capitol in the morning or in the evening when the rioters weren't there. So in the morning before the riot happened and in the evening after it was all cleared out. So they took away those because they presumed they would be like Capitol police or congressional staffers. And that only got them down to 5,518. So there was still <laughs> a lot of devices in there. And then what the um, And then what uh, the FBI said, right, in order to be really safe that we're only getting people that were actually participating in the riot and not just milling around near the barriers, we want to get only those people whose little blue dot was entirely within the GFN. And you know when you're using your phone, you're looking at your maps and you have that blue circle around you. Sometimes it's a tiny dot when you're in lots of, Great GPS reception and lots of Wi-Fi and cell phone tiles around. That means the blue dot gets small because it knows where you are. And sometimes that dot, is that circle is really big. Right. Perhaps when you're out in the countryside and you don't, and you haven't, you know, you've only got one GPS satellite, um, and so you, your location isn't that accurate. Well, the FBI said, let's, let's only have the ones so who the whole circle is inside the GFN. So we're pretty sure, we're not we're not positive, we're pretty sure it's about a 70% likelihood that that dot was actually inside the GFN at the time. And that got the numbers right down. That got them down to like um, under, just under 1,500 devices that they that yeah. thought were pretty and, much definitely in the GFNs.
1: And one of the un- other interesting things that they can tell and they have the information about is that they noticed that a lot of these phones had their airplane mode turned off. Presumably somebody said, well, I'm going to turn it off that way they can't track me. But what the location history does on these phones and all that, it tracks you either way. And that uh, prompted FBI officials to even put more scrutiny on some of these people that were trying to delete their location history in the days after, who had their airplane mode on during the, the insurrection, the Capitol riots. Uh, so that was another interesting factor that they looked at. You know, maybe people trying to hide their tracks.
2: Yeah, right. There's two separate things. The one is people who put their who well we know we don't know they had them in their phone in airplane mode. What we do know is that Google didn't have their location data live when it was happening. They only had it later. So that's probably that it had it they were in airplane mode. It could have just been they didn't get cell service for some reason. That's less likely because obviously it's pretty well served by cell phone towns. But there were lots of people there, maybe overloaded. Anyway, there are like seventy devices that they only got the data on a few days later, um, presumably when people popped their phone back out of airplane mode. So those were all in the mix. And then, yeah, you're right. The FBI also said, well, look, as well as these 1,500 that were definitely inside the building, out of that pool of 5,000, tell us anyone who tried to delete their location history, which is a bit different from just going into airplane mode. They're actively going in saying, whoa, to delete everything I did in the last week. And the FBI asked for those people in particular. And so that that gave them an extra 37 people who had, or 37 devices that had been, had their. 37 accounts that have tried to delete their data. So, yeah, the the truth is the FBI thought pretty carefully about who they were trying to target um, and put some of these limits on it. And they ended up in the end, they ended up getting the recovery email and telephone number for one thousand five hundred and thirty five devices.
1: And a lot of times, a lot of times these uh, geofence warrants uh, are, are very um, kept secretive. They, I mean, even this process for January 6th right now is still being kept secret. But the reason why we're learning a lot about this is there's actually a court case concerning one man who is kind of bringing this up in, in as part of their defense saying, you know, they shouldn't be using this stuff. I have an expectation of privacy. So this is how we're learning about this uh, this particular thing, uh, this the moves by the FBI on this one.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, all um, you know, GFN's warrants are normally sealed, and that seems to mean they're not available for public viewing because, obviously, they don't want to give away who they're looking at before they get there, um, before they you know make charges. And so, I mean, the other interesting thing about this, this three-step process that Google came up with, it was Google's invention. There's no court that said you have to do this three-step process. There's no one overseeing that. There's no defense attorneys at that point, of course, because um, they don't know who they're looking for, right? It's quite an early days. So it is quite an opaque process, um, and Google's has kind of set the standard for it because it's the one that law enforcement goes to most commonly because Google apps are on all our phones, you know, Apple, Android, you know, regardless, it's on, you know, it's the most popular one, and location history is extremely, um, you know, widely used. Right. But yes, it's still very secret, and so the only way we found about this was in when that um, when that individual tried to get the geofence data thrown out his lawyer included a lot of information from the original s- sealed search warrant. And so this is how we get, we, you know, we, we knew it was a big one and that the FBI had talked about hundreds and even thousands of devices, but we didn't know exactly how big and we didn't know the process. So it's really interesting to get a peek into, um, you know, how the FBI operates and how Google responds to that and, you know, how this whole process comes. Because even in that 1,500 devices, you know, even with their efforts of trying to exclude people who were in the Capitol before and afterwards, that, you know, they, they weren't trying to exclude, say, like photojournalists who were there, you know, pretty much at the same time as the rioters. And obviously their data would have got kept swept up in this hall, as well as paramedics who were responding. And you can imagine many types of people yes. or, you know, um, several other types of people who, who who may have got caught up and had their data handed over to the FBI that actually had no reason to be handed over. And that was a real key part of, um the motion that um this suspect is 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 trying to get past you know to try and exclude this data he's saying look way too many other people are getting caught up in this it's not constitutional it goes against the fourth uh amendments to the constitutional on unfair searches. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's totally interesting. That suspect is David Rhine. The court is supposed to be ruling on whether to throw that stuff out uh, in December, and then his trial is scheduled for late January of 2023. So this is going to call into question a lot of that stuff, and there's going to be a lot more conversation about all of this geofence warrants. It's a super interesting look. Mark Harris, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks. It was a pleasure to uh, talk with you.
4: you would think that you know kind of in a perfect world it would be the opposite the veteran employees would get paid a little bit more because they've already proven themselves because they already know their organizations well you know they should be rewarded for their loyalty but what's happening right now in this current economy is the exact opposite joining us now is aki ito senior correspondent at business insider thanks for joining us aki thanks for having me on
1: well here's an interesting question you wrote up an article about how much could you be paying for your loyalty at work? We've been hearing a lot of the stories, people leaving their current jobs for something better, uh, hopefully higher paying or with a better work-life balance. You know, a lot of people really want to do that work-from-home thing. But we also heard stories about how much power the employee had. You know, employers were, uh, you know, desperate for workers and they were doing everything they could, you know, offering a lot of benefits and perks, offering a lot higher salaries, and so this question comes up now, now that the dust has settled a little bit now, you know, what happens to the people that stayed at their jobs throughout all of this compared to the people that were moving all these jobs? And we're seeing in a couple places that, you know, the newer employees are being hired in with a higher salary, leaving the people that stayed at the job kind of falling behind. So Aki, tell us a little bit more about it and what we're seeing with this.
4: Over the past year, the job market has just been so incredibly hot that employers have had to just throw these huge salaries at new candidates just to get them to come work for them. And that's distorted, you know, the salaries across organizations because these new hires are getting paid so much more than what uh, existing employees are getting paid. You would think that, you know, kind of in a perfect world, it would be the opposite. The veteran employees would get paid a little bit more because they've already proven themselves, because they already know their organizations well. You know, they should be rewarded for their loyalty. But what's happening right now in this current economy is the exact opposite.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you look to industries like uh, tech and finance, right? There's always a lot of money flowing around through there. But they do have some estimates on how much some of these new hires are making. There's a compensation data provider. They're called Labor IQ. They estimate that salaries for new hires are 7% higher on average than the median pay for people that have stuck around in some of these jobs in some of these industries. That's a big pay disparity.
4: It is. And that's across the entire economy, across all occupations. When you look at some of the really in-demand jobs in tech or in finance, these gaps can be much larger. For example, uh, one job we looked at in the story was the job of IT manager's The gap between new hires and existing employees in that occupation is 20%. So, you know, that's a difference of tens of thousands of dollars in some of these jobs, which means that, you know, if you haven't switched jobs in the Great Resignation, you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table.
1: There's some names that they put to this phenomenon that's happening. So we're talking about the job switchers and the job stayers. And in one part, uh, they call it salary compression. This is when the gap starts to narrow on this. Uh, But it can move all the way to a salary inversion where the new hires are making more money than the veteran workers.
4: The broad term that uh, compensation professionals use is salary compression, which is a little bit confusing in this context because we're talking about a gap that's opening up, a gap that's becoming bigger and bigger. But kind of when you go back to what we talked about before, what you think should happen in an ideal economy. Veteran employees should get paid more than the new hires. When that gap starts to get smaller, you call that traditionally salary compression. And in a really extreme scenario, like what we're seeing right now, where the new hires are getting paid more than existing employees, that's called salary inversion.
1: Is this greater push, this kind of movement for pay transparency? You know, there was mm-hmm. this uh, great story about someone leaving their job. She she went on Twitter and said, "Hey, if anybody's applying for my job, just know that." This is how much I got paid. You should ask for more and for whatever perk. And, you know, it blew up at that point. But this is what's happening right now. People talk. People are getting the hint of who's making what and how much. And for the employer, uh, I like the way you wrote it up, too. I mean, there's a a very simple option. You just pay everybody more. But it's also an expensive thing. And that's tough for a lot of businesses to do.
4: I mean, the pay transparency thing is huge because, I mean, it's not just people randomly posting their salaries on Twitter. It's also, you know, some governments are starting to force employers to post pay ranges in the job openings. These job openings are public to everybody, including to the people in companies that already have that job. So, you know, you could just look at that job opening, be like, hey, this range is, you know, above what I'm getting paid. That gives the employee, you know, some leverage to negotiate for higher pay. And so when disparities exist, but you have that kind of transparency, employers are forced to close that gap. So so this move towards greater pay transparency is really huge
1: and for some of the companies that are noticing this they're seeing it right they are making some changes uh pay scale which deals with you know compensation data right they provide some of that data to their employees and everything like that they're raising wages on some things microsoft is a big company that took a look at this and said hey we need to adjust how much we're paying people so they're increasing salaries for uh you know high higher performers a lot of other companies are maybe giving some bonuses or something just so that those existing employees those people that stayed with them aren't getting disgruntled, you know, aren't feeling like they've just been left out in the lurch.
4: Yeah. I mean, for the last year, the big focus really has been on, you know, trying to find new workers. Right. It's been on talent acquisition. And I really think increasingly the conversation is going to move to talent retention about keeping existing employees you know, raising everybody's pay is expensive, but perhaps it's less expensive than losing your most talented employees and, you know, having to spend the next six months trying to look for somebody who you can hire, who you're going to have to pay a big salary because they're a new hire anyway.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I know some employers are going to just go with the, uh, let's stay quiet and see if anybody notices, but you know, on the <laughs> flip side of things, right. Uh, being overpaid does have its risks. once things do settle down, and once workflow gets back to normal, you know, if things happen, sometimes they're the first people to get cut at that point. So a very interesting look, something I had been very curious about, and it's starting to play out definitely now. Aki Ito, Senior Correspondent at Business Insider, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: That's it for today.